Amen. Let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to the Old Testament. The Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 40. These words reflect much of the song that we just sang together, Behold Our God. Isaiah chapter 40, if you have your Bible, please turn there. We'll read this chapter. And for those of us that are able to, we'll stand in the honor of the reading of God's Word. Isaiah chapter 40, and beginning with verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she is received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord is spoken. Verse 6. A voice says, Cry. And I said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up. Fear not, say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span? Enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor its beast enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing in emptiness. Verse 18, to whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman cast it. And a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that it will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Verse 21. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing 
and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown. Scarcely has their stem taking root in the earth. When he blows on them and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. Verse 25, To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Verse 27, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Let's pray together. Almighty God, you're the one who speaks to the prophet Isaiah, crying out that your people might be comforted. I ask God that you would comfort your people that the message of this text would resound as it's supposed to Lord that the spirit might work in us and in our hearts that we might see God through God's eyes as you've revealed yourself. So speak and move for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. In God we trust this is what stared at me on the license plate, the Indiana license plate, as I waited in line to get my chicken at Famous Jay's this week. The person in front of me from Indiana, the back of the license plate, saying, In God we trust. And this is what stared back at me as I handed my $5 bill to pay for my lunch just above the Lincoln Memorial inscribed on our currency in God we trust and it brings to my mind a critical question who is this God we trust depending on how we answer that question is going to lead us in how we answer many other questions about God do we trust this God that we say that we trust and is this God trustworthy I mentioned that this morning because as we look at Isaiah chapter 40, this beautiful and wonderful passage of Scripture, 
I mention that because this was the prevailing question. It was a question of trust in the day of the prophet Isaiah. Who is this God we trust? Or who is this God that we say we trust? Turn with me in your Bible to Isaiah chapter 36. And notice an episode in the life of the prophet Isaiah. Assyria was a rising powerful empire conquering nation after nation. In fact, Assyria was known for being the first empire to develop iron weapons. They had bronze weapons in that day. Now they were the first to develop iron weapons, which were much more enduring and and powerful and strong and hard to penetrate. They were the first ones, the Assyrian army were the first to develop siege works to actually have a corps of engineers who were responsible for developing those siege works and and plugging up the moats around cities and erecting ladders and ramps to go over the walls of towns. They were the first ones to do that. They were the first ones to develop chariots to be used in battle. And it's the Assyrian army in view here that is approaching Israel in the day of the prophet Isaiah, particularly under the leadership of the king of Judah, King Hezekiah. And it tells us in Isaiah chapter 36 that one of the messengers of the king of Assyria had been sent to intimidate God's people. And these are his words in Isaiah chapter 36 verse 4, And the Rabshakeh said to them, Say to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, On what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Behold, verse 6, you are trusting in Egypt. They had made an alliance with Egypt, Israel had. So they were trusting in Egypt. That broken reed, he says, of a staff which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it, such as Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all who trust in him. Verse 7, but if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? Come now and make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. You see, In the day of the prophet Isaiah, as the kingdom of Assyria was advancing upon them, as intimidating as as it was, and the reputation that preceded them, it was a matter of whether or not they would trust in the Lord their God. Whom would they put their trust in? Alliances like neighboring countries like Egypt, a powerful empire in that day. Or would they put their trust in God? A God in whom they had sinned against, in whom they'd made idols to. A God in whom they drew near to, with, near to him with their lips, but their hearts were indeed far from him. John Oswald writes about the particular situation of Israel, Judah, during the day of the Assyrian advance. This is what Israel saw. They saw the oncoming juggernaut of Assyria. They could not avoid seeing it, and it so filled their vision that they really could see nothing else. 
You think about that. This is what they saw. They saw Assyria coming, and it so filled their vision, they could see nothing else. It dominated their thoughts. It dominated their attention. When we were in Bosnia, our church has taken trips to Bosnia the last four summers, and we won't be able to go this summer. My heart aches because of that. We went there to teach English. And in the assembly times we've had as we've taught English there at the Baptist church, and the students that come, many of the students it's a, are Muslim and, and don't believe that Jesus is the Christ, the King, but they do believe he's a great prophet. But as they come for these assembly times, we, we enjoy meeting with them. We have a wonderful time. We, when we sing songs, some silly songs to help them practice their English, then we sing some songs that kind of gradually lead into more implicating or uh, they imply talking about who God is and I don't know if the students understand that or not at times but one of the songs we've sung at times that just gets me real emotional every time we sing it because as they sing these songs these students I'm looking around watching them and I'm wondering in my mind if they're thinking about what this song is talking about the words of the song says could there be more that I'm searching for than I've ever known? Could there be more than I'm searching for than I've ever known? <laughs> and they're singing this, and I'm thinking, yes, there is. There is more. One commentator on the book of Isaiah said this, people must see and sense that God is beautiful with a beauty they have never known. Well, I mentioned those things because as the Assyrian army is advancing and it dominates their thoughts and it dominates their attention and they can't seem to think about anything else. It's on the news all the time. It's the latest headline. What they need is a vision of the beauty and glory of God. They need to see what the prophet Isaiah himself saw in Isaiah chapter 6. Holy, holy, holy. Is the Lord God Almighty. Whoa, is the response. I'm a man of unclean lips, and he cleanses them. Oh, how they need this cleansing to take place in this vision of God. They need to see God if they are to have comfort about the future. It's what they need, but it is not what they deserve. And so the words, the opening words of chapter 40 of Isaiah come somewhat as a surprise in light of the fact that Israel has sinned so grievously over and over against God. God's people, His chosen people, have committed idolatry. They've set up alliances with other nations. They've not depended upon God. They, they're pretenders. And so what we see in Isaiah chapter 40 is somewhat unexpected. After revelation, after revelation, after revelation in 39 chapters of judgment to come, God says in verse 1, comfort, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. God is saying to the prophet, it seems, to the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah, I want you to comfort them. To comfort my people. I have a people. I've not cast them off utterly. There's a second context we must keep in mind as we look at this passage of Scripture because it's not only that the Assyrian army was advancing when Isaiah was given this message, but it was also a message for the immediate future 
when God's people, Judah, would go into captivity into Babylon. There would be another empire named Babylon that would come and take them away. And it was this message beginning in Isaiah chapter 40 and and continuing afterwards that the people in Babylon would hold on to and need to cling to so that they would not think as they saw their ongoing being away from their homes under the leadership of Babylon oppressed by them, they would not see this and think to themselves, We have sinned too much, and we have no hope. They would need this message that Isaiah had said previously, that that they needed to be comforted. And the way to be comforted, as we see in verse 9, which I think is the key verse of the chapter, at the end of the verse it says, Behold your God. Say to the cities of Judah, proclaim this good news. Behold your God. So what I want to share with you as we launch into these verses is that comfort regarding the future for the people of God comes from beholding your God. So there's three sights or three visions or three beholdings that I pray that will take place in our hearts as the word of God is being preached about the glory, the greatness, and the grace of God. The first one is this. Behold, this is what we need to behold. This is what we need to see. Behold the incarnate glory of God coming to save his people. As we look in verses 1 through 11, that's the message, that the people of God need to see the incarnate glory of God coming to save his people. You know what the word incarnate means? We, you, you know about the incarnation of Christ. Well, that's really how it's fulfilled. It's the glory of God is coming to the people. God wants to comfort his people. And there's a lot of crying out in this text. There's a crying out in verse 2. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her. There's a crying out in verse 3, a voice cries. And there's a crying out in verse 6, a voice says, cry. A lot of crying out in these passages of Scripture. I mean, it is God who is crying out. It's God who is speaking. This is God's word. It's God speaking to the prophet. And he cries out, first of all, in verse 2, unexpectedly and undeservedly. What does he cry out in verse 2? What's your Bible say? Her warfare is ended. Her iniquity is pardoned. She's received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. What a message of forgiveness. What a message of deliverance. What a message of salvation to the people of God. That people that would later go into captivity in Babylon would hear this message. But here is God who's been infinitely offended by the people. They, they went into captivity at, one, at, at some point in the future. They would go into captivity in Babylon because of their sin. On what basis can God justly say this? Can God forgive them? He says this because it is God himself who is coming to save. And that's the vision. That's what we see in these verses beginning in the verse 3. It's God who is coming to save. Notice it says in verse 3, a voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way, the way of who? What's it say? The way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Who's coming? Who's coming to save his people? Who's coming to, to bring about this forgiveness? Who will be this deliverer? God. 
God is coming. And it tells us that every valley will be lifted up and every mountain will be made low. It's going to change everything. It's going to shake up everything. The uneven ground should become level and the rough places a plain. It's not talking about the work of an engineer that will take great big bulldozers and dump trucks and take mountains away. It's talking about the work of a bony-fingered preacher named John the Baptist who eats grasshopper sandwiches. And he's a wild man, and he's preaching in the Jordan River years later after the captivity of Babylon. And he's the one who's preparing the way. He's the one, it says in John chapter 1, verse 23, he said, I am the voice crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. He is the one. And so God is just in saving us. And saving his people who've sinned against him greatly because it is the incarnate glory of God, his son and his son Jesus Christ that John the Baptist preaches about. He'll come to save his people through his death on the cross for our sins. Verse 5 says, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. So as John the Baptist preaches, he's the one, his ministry was the one that was leveling mountains and making rough places a plain. He was preaching a message of repentance, a message of repentance to prepare the way of the Lord. Men and women were responding by being baptized, knowing that their mountain of pride of their hearts was being leveled in anticipation of God, by the anticipation of God's promise of Messiah getting ready to come. And so, and so the next day, John the Baptist, the next day, John the Baptist, he's been doing his ministry, he's out, he's been doing his ministry, he's telling his ministry, he's telling his ministry, he's telling his ministry, he's Jesus is coming toward him. Jesus had come toward him. And he said, Oh, God who comes to the Lamb of God, you come to take away the sin of the world. See of whom I said, This is he of whom I said, He comes to the rank after me. He comes to the rank for me. I myself did not know him. I myself did not know him. But for this purpose, about this revealing of the glory of the Lord, revealing the glory of the Lord, for this purpose, I came back for this purpose, I came back to the glory of Israel. He might be revealed the Baptist Even stand out more get a haircut when I'm get a haircut. 
we feel forever young, as we feel forever young, as we see gray hairs, as we see gray hairs, or wrinkles, or whatever, we're not going to live. We're not going to live forever. And you look in your Bible in verse 7, look in your Bible. Withers, like the grass withers, grass withers, the flower blows on the true breath of the Lord grass, on the true end of the grass, all the flesh in the grass, all, all beauty, all flesh, all the beauty is all beauty, all the beauty is like the And there ain't been no rain for a few weeks. Them blooms are going to be gone for sure. And some completely dried up. And you can look out your window and see the hearse coming down the road. Another funeral procession. Or you can look in the mirror and see reminders of the brevity of life and how quickly everything changes. That we're here today and gone tomorrow. And such is the lesson of a pandemic about the brevity of life and the uncertainty of life. But it is only the Word of God that will stand forever. And it is His Word that we must build our lives upon. You'll look in the mirror and you'll see yourself changing or others. Or you may look out the window and see the hearse coming down the road. You may look at the television later and hear about the number of people that have died today or in the past 24 hours from the coronavirus. But you will never look at this Word of God and see that anything has changed or that anything fails. And what God has promised here the reason these words that are inserted right here are so important, verse 8, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever, is because God has just made a great promise, has he not? He's coming. The incarnate glory of God is coming, he's saying to the people that later will we go into captivity in Babylon. He's coming. Build your lives on this word. Don't be overcome with despair. Don't let your vision be completely clouded by the Assyrian advance or the future Babylonian captivity. God is coming. Let this dominate your vision. Let this dominate your thoughts. Look at verse 9. Go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. We sing that song around Christmas time. We ought to sing it all the time, right? Go, tell it on the mountain that Jesus Christ is Lord. Go up on a high mountain, O herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Even in the midst of of your captivity in Babylon or the Assyrian army advancing in the day of Isaiah. No matter what the situation is, go up to a high mountain and tell the good news that our God is coming. And yet, we say it differently, don't we? We don't say, our God has come already. We read these passages of Scripture, we read this Old Testament as believers, and we know He's already come. He's coming, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our message is not, He's coming, and He is coming, but our message is, He's coming, He has come. He has died and risen again, and He's coming back. Go up to a high mountain and fear not. 
and tell everybody, behold your God. John Calvin calls that the presence of God is the sum of all happiness. The presence of God is the sum of all happiness. Behold your God. He's, he's here. He's in your midst. He's the one who came and said, Lo, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. And he says he'll put his spirit in us and indwell us and will never leave or forsake us. So tell the good news. Proclaim the incarnate glory of God who has come and who is coming again. Verse 10 says, Behold, the Lord God comes with might. He comes with might. He did not come with wrath. He came with might, displaying his might and then laying down his life for his sheep like this tender shepherd in verse 11, gathering his lambs. He's the great shepherd who became a sheep and laid down his life for the sheep. This is what God has done for us in Jesus. So what good news for the Israelites as they face the future? Even in their present as the Assyrians are advancing continually? Or as the future Babylonian captivity will take place? What a glorious message and good news for them. The incarnate glory of God coming to save his people. When they go into captivity, they must not conclude that God has utterly forsaken them. And when we go into whatever situation we might be in as God's people, we should never conclude that God has utterly forsaken us. But who is this God we trust? He's made a great promise, but can he keep it? That seems to be the question. Later he would destroy the Assyrian army, but when the, key people go into, when the people go into captivity in Babylon, perhaps they might conclude, well, that was just a lucky shot on God's part, destroying the Assyrian army. Can he really do it to the Babylonians too? Will he really keep his word? Well, secondly, not only do we need to behold the incarnate glory of God coming to save his people, but behold the immeasurable greatness of God, stunning in comparison to everything else. Behold the immeasurable greatness of God, stunning in comparison to everything else. In comparison to the world, the cosmos. Look at verse 12. Who's measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Who's done that? I was out with my little boy the other day, and we got this fountain out in front of our house. It's part of our, what you call that fancy stuff, landscaping, yeah. Fancy stuff. Landscaping. We got a little fountain out there, and the fountain ain't been working for a while because the kid's been putting rocks inside the fountain. And it blew the pump out. And I ain't replacing it because it's like a lot of money. But I didn't know that, so I took some time to dig the pump out. And when I dug the pump out, I had to get some water out of that little reservoir there so I could get the pump out. And so I started dipping it out with my hand. I'm like, this is going to take forever, Titus. Titus was helping me. And my little eight-year-old, and then I got a cup. And I, said, I used my head to get a cup and a cup. And that, that, that made a lot more progress. Just to get water out of a little tiny reservoir. Over, 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 scooping with my hand. Yet God, in his hand, who can measure the water in the hollow of his hand? Just, just right there in the palm of his hand. All the waters. His, in, his, his immeasurable greatness is stunning in comparison to everything else in comparison to the world. Look at verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span. 
It said the observable universe is 46 billion light years across. It'd take 114,000 years just to travel to our nearest star, which is 4.7 years away, 4.7 light years away. And our observable universe is 46 billion light years across our observable universe. But God marks off the heavens with a span. A span is the distance between the end of your thumb to your finger. He just, that's how big it is. This is how much water is in the world. Just look right here. Who has held the oceans in his hands? Who's numbered every grain of sand? He's enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales. Who can take all the mountains and the, the hills and put them on a scale and weigh it? Gives new meaning to that song we may have grew up with. He's got the whole world in his hands. God does not go to school. Why do you go to school, kids? Some say, I gotta have to. What's the purpose? It's to learn. Because you don't know everything, even though you think you might, you don't. And you won't ever. God does not go to school because God does not learn, He knows everything. And so we see in verse 13 who's measured the Spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? Verse 14. Who made him to understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Who teaches God? Who consults God? Or who to whom does God consult? He's stunning in comparison to the world and to the nation's Behold, the nations are like a drop, drop from a bucket. If you were carrying a bucket of water out and a little bit sloshed over on the ground, would you set the bucket down panicking, trying to scoop up that water off the ground as best you could, that little tiny drop of water that dropped out of that bucket? No, it would be as nothing to you. You would go on about your work. And the Bible tells us the nations, the nations that the Israelites feared and, and were sometimes trusting in were like a tawny drop in a bucket. And all the nations combined with all their resources could not bring a sufficient offering to this God. Look at verse 16. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor were its beast enough for a burnt offering. There is nothing sufficient in the universe combined even that would be sufficient as an offering to God. The only thing that is sufficient to bring to God is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he comes as a once for all sufficient sacrifice for our sins. Behold the immeasurable greatness of God stunning in comparison to everything else. The world, the nations, the lineup of the idols. Just imagine idols being lined up and comparing them to God. First of all, you would have to bring the idol over here to line it up next to the other idol, prop it up, maybe nail it to the floor so it won't topple over. And then there's God, the one true 
God. No comparison with God. One commentator says, Isaiah, if you read the words here in verse 18, to whom then will you liken God or what likeness compare with him? An idol, a craftsman cast it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and cast for it silver chains. There's no criticism of idols here. It's just a description of what idols are, right? He just describes them. He doesn't have to criticize them because just the description itself shows how foolish it is to worship something that you're covering over with gold and saying this is like God. Raymond Orland said Isaiah doesn't criticize idol making. He just describes it. But description is all he has to do. Idol making is too stupid to require a comment. There's simply no comparison with God. We've all probably heard the term comfort food. You want your comfort food, your ice cream, or whatever it might be. And perhaps the Lord's teaching us in the midst of our pandemic that these good things that we miss and don't have as much of often too easily become set up in our hearts as idols. And perhaps they dominate our thoughts too much and too often. Immediately after I typed these words in the sermon notes I was putting together, just immediately my wife texted me and said, did you hear the governor extended his stay-at-home order through the end of May? I was like, what? That's, that's not intended to be a criticism against the governor. It's just I wasn't expecting that. Man, I, I want to have a date night. <laughs> I want to get a babysitter, and I want to go, and I want to have a date night with my wife. Or I, I, want, to, I want to have church. I want to see everybody at church. I want to go to Big John's and have some catfish. And I miss these things, these good things. God's reminding us perhaps that God doesn't dominate our thoughts and desires and pursuits. Perhaps this is part of the lessons we're being taught as a church. Behold the immeasurable greatness of God, stunning in comparison to everything else. But notice the Holy One in verse 21 through 26. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Verse 21, have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth as its habits are like grasshoppers. Just think about sitting out at a pond fishing and watching the grasshoppers hop around every now and kick the grass and they'll start hopping around sometimes. Just sitting there watching the little grasshoppers hop around in your chair. You can just crush them any time. They don't mean anything to you really. Maybe put one on your hook say, all right, your life's over. Let's see if you can catch me a bass. Here is God sitting on the circle of the earth and all its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. But he cares for each one. He laid down his life for those whom he would save. He hangs the heavens like a curtain. You know, just hanging up curtains in my daughter's bedroom yesterday. For, for God, we consider the vastness of the universe just like hanging curtains. Just hang up curtains. 
verse 22, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. How many of you have been camping before and went through the pain of setting up a tent? Especially if it's the weather's not too good when you're trying to set it up and you forgot a pole for stakes or whatever it is or the directions because you hadn't done it in three years. Here's God. No trouble at all. Spreading out the universe like a tent to dwell in. No trouble. No problem. Not because he needs shelter, but because he's displaying his glory through it. Not only that, but he is active in the world. Let me tell you this about God. I may ask you a question. I started off the message this morning. In God we trust. Who is this God you trust? Maybe, maybe you don't call yourself an atheist, but maybe you're more agnostic. Maybe the God, you're, you're afraid to come right out and say there is no God, but there's something force out there or being, but, but you're not really sure he's involved in the world really cares about the world. Or you're not sure he's great, but you're not so sure he's good. And you notice the passage of Scripture, God's Word says, verse 23, He brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of earth as emptiness. Brings and makes. This is a God who's active in the world. He's, this is not the God of deism. He's active and he's sovereign over the world that he has made. He's not a hands-off God. The world is not spinning out of control. He's got the whole world in his hands and he's at work in the world that's in his hands. Some of you are planting gardens right now. That could easily be taken away by a storm. And we look in verse 24 and it says, Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. So the nations of the earth that God is active among and is sovereign over are like that garden that a storm could easily just take it away. Scarcely, scarcely it says, are they planted. Here comes one empire. The Assyrians dominating the world. Oh, we're afraid of the Assyrians. And where are they now? Well, you can't even find out hardly anything about them. There's hardly any news out there. I mean, we find, well, I told you some interesting things about their iron chariots and so forth. But where are the Assyrians now? They're, they're dust. Where's the Roman Empire at? It's gone. Scarcely gone. Whom will we put our trust in? We must put our trust in the Holy One. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. That phrase, the Holy One, is used 30 times in the Bible and 25 of those times are in the book of Isaiah. God is saying, I am the Holy One. There is one who is holy. Behold the immeasurable greatness of God in comparison to everything else, in stunning comparison to everything else. There is one who is holy. And it is God. So lift up your eyes and see. Look at the stars in the sky, he's saying in verse 26. He brings them out, their host by number, calling them all by name. Not, he, he holds them in place. It says at the end of verse 26, not one is missing. It's said about our Milky Way galaxy 
that there's a hundred billion stars in our Milky Way galaxy. You know how long it would take you to count all the stars in the Milky Way galaxy? 3,000 years. So get started. God says not one of them is missing. He knows them. He names them. Such a God is not going to forget you. Such a God never forgets one of His people. Not one of His people are missing. What happened to so-and-so? Does God do that about anybody? Well, I just plumb lost track of him. Well, that family, I hadn't even been thinking about them. I thought they fell off the end of the world. You know, that's what the people of Israel were thinking about God. Look at what it says in verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God. Let me tell you something. What God's saying through the prophet Isaiah to his people is, God has not forgotten you. And the third sight of of God that we need to be reminded of is that we need to behold the infinite grace of God, strengthening those who wait for him. He says, O Jacob, O Israel. These are the words of the covenant. God had made a gracious covenant with Jacob, with Israel. He's not forgotten his covenant. God's made a new covenant for us through Jesus Christ. He's not forgotten His people. God is able to strengthen us for endurance. When I was a kid, I remember one time, y'all had Lincoln Logs? My kids still got Lincoln Logs. I played with Lincoln Logs growing up, buddy. I could build some stuff with Lincoln Logs. I had Army men Lincoln Logs. Sometimes the Lincoln Logs became bombs to destroy the Army. Sometimes Mom's house shoes and the shoes from her closet, unbeknownst to her, became bombs to destroy the Army and the Lincoln Logs. Anyway, I digress. I was building this house out of Lincoln Logs one day. There, and my brother came along. I'd built this house. I'd taken my time. My brother came along, and you know what he did? My brother came and kicked it over. He kicked over my house. To which I calmly replied, Ah! And I cried, and I screamed. Bloody murder. Some of you parents know what I'm talking about. My dad's outside chopping wood or shoveling coal or something. I forgot what he was doing. And he came in the house. He's like, what's wrong? What's wrong? What's wrong? He knocked over my Lincoln logs. And my dad's like, oh, are you kidding me? This was the supposed urgent thing. One commentator comments, how you and I are locked into the right now of our existence. We're just locked into the moment. The present moment is all we experience. And the urgency of that moment can squeeze us with its pressures so that we make costly mistakes because of the urgency of the moment. Costly mistakes out of our own exaggerated sense of emergency. I had an exaggerated sense of emergency for sure when my Lincoln logs got knocked over. And there are certainly some situations that are very serious going on in your lives. 
But often we have an exaggerated sense of urgency and forget that this God is the creator. He is, he is eternal. He is in no hurry. He's, he's, look at what it says. Verse 28, have you not known, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He's, th this God is not a slave to the urgency of the moment because he's eternal. He stands outside time. Wow, that blows our mind. He has no beginning, no end, and he exists outside of time where, as if he can see all things at once and do all things at once. <laughs> I can't find the words to explain that. I'm not supposed to. He's an infinite God. And he's always at work. Look at verse 28. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is searchable. He don't take naps. He don't take breaks. He's always at work. He's, always, he, he's not in a hurry, but it's not like he's just off lollygagging. He's always at work. He's doing a million things in our world. Thousands of things in our life. Every single millisecond. And he's not tired. If he took a break, the stars would fall. The oceans would dry. And we would be dead. He is always at work. And he is always wise. Look at verse 28. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. His understanding is past finding out. His ways are higher than our ways. So I was playing basketball with my boys yesterday. I was trying to get revenge on them because they beat me in a game of horse. A week ago, Nick Foster pulled up showing me his new motorcycle and distracted me. And they beat me. My 14-year-old and my 12-year-old beat me. I've been beat by them before, but not both of them. So I was going to get revenge yesterday. And we played horse. And they beat me without distraction. I said, well, let's play again. Bring it on. And they beat me again. Well, let's play pig then. Maybe we can go shorter. <laughs> and my 14 and a half year olds, smart, smarty pants, gets the basketball and does this. Behind his back, off the backboard, psh, goes in. So I can't do that. My arm is not that flexible any longer. I do it and it plong. He goes and does it again and puts me out. I give up and go in the house. I am past my prime. Verse 30 says, Even though you shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. We all reach that place where we're past our prime at some point. You're not going to be young forever. You're not going to live forever. There's all far too many reminders. Sometimes your own kid's ready to remind you of that. But many reminders, sometimes that you're aching back in the morning or forgetting where you put your glasses. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. There's a weariness that takes place. It's not just physical, but spiritual, soul-draining, discouragement. Leads to complaining. 
Verse 27, my way is hidden from the Lord. And it tells us in verse 30, even youth shall faint and be weary. Even young men shall fall exhausted. What the Bible is telling us here is that every single one of us will have times in our lives where we will feel and perhaps say, my way is hidden from the Lord. And you may think you're strong now. You have rock, you're just rock solid. But there will be times where you will be discouraged. You will need to be strengthened. That's what the Bible's teaching. You will need to be strengthened. Even you, you shall faint. Well, you're going to run out of steam. Spiritual steam. Spiritual stamina. Emotional strength. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. So we are not promised that those difficult times will not come. But what we are promised is that when those times come, what are we promised in verse 31? What's your Bible say? Those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. So we're not promised that we won't feel drained or discouraged. We are promised that when we feel drained and discouraged, if we wait upon the Lord, He will renew us and He will strengthen us. In fact, the words over and over in this text, weary, faint, weary, strength, strength, weary, faint. I just repeated these repetition of words. That's what this, these verses are about. God is ready to strengthen His people. He gives us what we need to endure. Surely I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. Paul's saying, I can do jail time, and we say, I can do quarantine time, I can do cancer, I can do getting older, I can do a difficult class at school, I can do being, I could do being persecuted for my faith in Jesus because Christ strengthens me. Wait upon the Lord to strengthen you. So let me say in closing, as we think about this God that we say we know or trust, I pray that you do. It's such a general and broad phrase inscribed upon our money, isn't it? In God we trust. It's not specific enough. I'm glad it's there, but I'm not sure if it means a whole lot. Who is the God you trust? Perhaps we should petition and say, let's just change that. Let's just change what's on the back of the Indiana license plate or on the back of our money and just put, instead of in God we trust, let's just put in Christ alone we trust. You think that would fly? In Christ alone we trust. Probably not. But this, my friend, must be inscribed upon your heart. That Jesus Christ alone is the one in whom you trust. He is the one who has come to save He is the one who guarantees that we're strengthened. He is the one who is immeasurable greater than anything in the universe. So be sure you're trusting only in Jesus Christ for your salvation and not yourself or anything else. And church member, Christian, cling to the promises of God that's found in Scripture. Wait upon the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for your great promises. And I ask you to help us, Father, to cultivate, to nurture a vision 
a biblical vision of God. We can't meet together like you want us to. To help each other with that. But Father, help us to be creative in the ways that we can do that for one another. And God, give us intentionality and a a spirit of faithfulness to do that even when we're alone by lingering in your word. Gazing upon your word and your promises. And be so gracious, God, to let us see you and to be stirred by what we see. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let's sing his closing song. Thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me.